yeah go for it it's uh yeah we're still recording yeah okay um you know i always wanted to be an architect from a very early age i mean i think from about the age of eight i was already taking interesting angle shots of buildings and stuff with my brownie camera um so that's weird i had no idea where that came from um and then i went to university and i studied architecture and then i very quickly became uh, a teacher of architecture and a practitioner and Weirdly, all that time, you know, from the time I started studying it onwards, I had this weird feeling that, okay, I love architecture, I love buildings, but there's something about my particular interest in architecture that is not just the buildings. And it became a very painful kind of 20-year-long quest to find out what this thing was. Um, and at the end of this painful quest, which I'll spare you because everyone's got a life, um, I realized it was really life, actually. It was just, it was for me, the interest in architecture was what our relationship with buildings was, how buildings allowed us to lead a good life, as it were. So I then went on this other search to sort of think, well, how can I bring, you know, real life into the architectural discourse? You know, I was never interested in naming all the kind of the twiddly bits on the top of a capital. You know, that never really interested me, but, you know, kind of, if I ever went to a country house or something, I would always go immediately to the backstage, you know, to the kitchen and stuff, just to understand the engine room and so on. Um, and it was just in a conversation with a colleague from the London School of Economics where I was briefly teaching, which, you know, where, uh, you know, was, I have to say, the closest I ever got in an architectural context of really having all of life there, um, that I came up with the idea of describing a city through food. Um, and that was in April 2000. So that is literally now 20 years ago. And it was the biggest light bulb moment of my life because I knew it was my thing because I knew I'd been interested in food for a long time. But I realized that through food and describing food, I could bring real life into the architectural discourse. So that was the moment really that, that I started down that path. Um, I ran out and, you know, joined a library and looked up the word food and took out the first 10 books that came up and read them. And, you know, I had goose bumps, you know, because I just knew that this was my thing. And then I realized within about a week, OK, trying to sort of describe a city through food is a bit like trying to describe civilization because you're saying, how do you feed a city? And that's just a crazy big question. Um, and I thought, well, I'm not remotely qualified to do this. But as it turns out, I was already doing it. And then I worked out that actually nobody would be qualified to talk about that because it's so big. Um, and that was what led to Hungry City, which came out in 2008. Um, and in that book, I I learned, you know, the degree to which the whole world is shaped by food. And, and that's when I invented this word, sitopia, from the Greek sitos, for food and topos, for place, just to describe the world as it was shaped by food so and i've never gone back to the day job it's funny because all the i think the urbanists that have at least for me um it's quite strange because the ones i i, I wouldn't have read in undergrad and, and grad because of the the softness of the voice or the softness of the argument uh, were the precise ones that became quite fascinating to me in in sort of phd onwards i mean for I mentioned the students, for instance, Patrick Geddes quite frequently, Camilo Cite, um, Howard Davis being my advisor. Uh, but it's these approaches to architecture that, for urbanism in general, that are very much um, personal. Like I think Patrick Geddes, for him, it was the relocation of his family to a informal high density settlement, right? And the things he observed there. Um, for Howard Davis, he talks about it very similar to how you just discussed it, where post, uh, I guess, culture of building 
quite a few people were asking him what's the next topic and he didn't have the answer right but then he just wandered through the city and he encountered you know uh, shop houses and he, he encountered this background architecture that was just everywhere in the city and very much similar to what you just said i can't remember if he said goosebumps i'm assuming a very similar um light bulb and the urgency uh, the way you describe it it's almost it's a it's a, it's a need to write I often describe it like a, a cloud forming above your head of ideas. And it gets almost painful, like just before a, a really big thunderstorm, it's almost oppressive, you know, and then the cloud starts to rain and it's an incredible relief. And I've, I've had that feeling twice in my life. And the first one was when I had the idea for Hungry City. I'm getting goosebumps now just remembering it. The second one, when I when Hungry City was translated into Dutch and I was actually sitting in a theatre in Amsterdam meeting all these amazing Dutch journalists and talking about the book. It was then about two or three years after Hungry City had come out and the cloud had come back you know, because my thinking had moved on. And I was really almost in pain again with this, all these ideas about what, what food was and everything. And it was, you know, not finding form. And then somebody asked me a question and I don't know what the question was, but in the act of answering it, the cloud started raining again. And I had a lot of trouble not bursting into tears because it was just that moment. I knew I was going to have to write another book. You mean the tears because of the brainstorm or because you knew what was ahead of you? I was really ill, but it was kind of emotional <laughs> as well. It was like I, I could feel the ideas were forming. They were becoming solid. And, and so I knew, I knew that a book was on its way. So Sitopia comes out March 5th, right at the, the beginning of this uh global crisis um yeah how's it been afterwards because it seems like you've been doing some uh online sort of discussions and things of this sort and it seems like people have found some relevance uh that may have been unexpected or did it sort of uh did you predict some sort of global cataclysmic uh event reassuring the relevance of your work i certainly didn't uh predict covid19 um but but no basically um what I'm finding, and it is really weird, is that a lot of the issues that I was addressing in Sitopia, in any case, um, because we were already facing a massive global crisis, but it was a slow moving one that people were very, you know, having a very difficult time treating as a crisis, um, i.e., you know, climate change, loss of biodiversity, etc., etc., etc. So what's really weird is I was addressing a, a global crisis through the lens of food. And then this other unexpected global crisis came along where basically what we've been forced to do is a lot of what I was saying we were going to have to do anyway. You know, so I mean, and this is just I mean, I it, we're only two weeks into this. So, I mean, I haven't really kind of um rounded off all my thinking, shall we say, but certainly people who are reading the book at the moment and there aren't that many of them because of course my entire book tour got cancelled but anyway I mean people who are reading the book are saying they're finding it weirdly prescient you know almost spookily so because um as I say I mean you know in the book I'm arguing that basically we have to relocalize and get more resilient and have a circular economy and you know all the things that basically when you can't jump in a plane every five minutes and you know you can't sort of get cheap parts in from china you're immediately faced with anyway but obviously in a in a in a bad way in the sense that we haven't prepared for this so it's all crisis mode um 
But ironically, I mean, one of the things I also say in the book, which I guess I should probably explain a little bit about before I sort of dive into detail, but um, is that basically, you know, there is an irony that it often takes a crisis, you know, at the scale of a war or a natural disaster to actually make us seriously rethink the way we live. Um, and then lo and behold, a crisis that I couldn't have foreseen just trots along. So we're in that mode, extraordinarily. In in I can't remember if it's in the the book Hungry City or if it's in your lectures, but there was um you frame quite uh, concisely the shift between um, basically the municipal ownership of certain food production capacities and how that gets fractured as railroads and things like this get introduced, right? Um, it, again, I can't remember if you ever venture into this, but do you, um, given the current condition globally, um, do you see any urgency of municipalities to start to claim at least some, um, authorship within that domain again? Again, my mind sort of goes to, uh, Roman warehouses, uh, these kind of conditions where you'd emergency stockpile for multiple years at a time. Uh, has your thinking meandered in that direction following this? Well, I mean, it hasn't meandered there. It was there already. I mean, you know, it was absolutely there already. And ironically, um, you know, for example, last year I gave a talk at the Oxford Food Symposium on food and power, you know, and it was all about the story of how, you know, every urban administration used to have food right, you know, front and centre of their thinking because feeding the people was the most obviously important thing they had to do. And how, as you rightly say, with the coming of industrialization, um, you know, they, they, shall we say, wiped a collective brow of relief because, you know, no politician ever enjoyed being in charge of the food system because you can't really be in charge of it. It's very, very difficult to control. So um, that absolutely happened during the course of the 19th and 20th centuries. And, and, and the irony of the position we find ourselves in now is that, you know, we have a, a food system, you know, it's certainly in the West and increasingly globally that's entirely dependent on the market. And we've seen what that means when there's a crisis, you know, um, rich people get to eat and poor people don't, to put it bluntly. Um, and also, you know, the government actually does, there, there are no national stocks of, of food, you know, basically because we have this super efficient, quote unquote, just in time system. Um, and it's very interesting, for example, that, you know, in the UK right now, um, there's 90,000 uh, missing farm workers because we import, you know, farm workers from Eastern Europe every year to pull our food out of the ground. And of course, you know, now they can't come because of the, of the plague and everyone's going, oh, my God, we're not going to have anyone pulling the food out the ground to which my response is, well, that's been a problem for, you know, 20 or 30 years you know, and I mean, already with Brexit, you know, people who actually were not for Brexit were kind of going, actually, we need these people, you know, to do these really essential jobs that we totally undervalue and we almost forget about in, you know, in the good times. So, I mean, I think the whole question of who controls food, you know, both politically and also in terms of what future resilience looks like, because by the way, I don't want to depress your listeners, but, you know, this is this is not the last pandemic we're, we're likely to face because our entire way of being and of feeding ourselves is is set up to reduce biodiversity. And that means more pandemics. So, you know, th this is a dry run for something much worse that could be down the line. And, I, you know, unless we change the way we live and eat, which, of course, I think we should. Um, 
So, yes, I mean, it's just absolutely highlighting the lack of resilience in in not not just our sort of food systems, but in society as a whole. I know in, in again, The Hungry City and your lectures, you, uh, um, you talk about, for instance, the organic versus industrial farming debates, and you talk about the importance of actually reverse engineering the from the ideal um, sort of situation of society back to the food systems that would support it in regard to the uh, reclaiming of the public power over food production how uh, is there a vision for that that you you see i mean is it is it a would it become a hybrid partnership in terms of um, some public ownership some private ownership is there uh, do you see the rebirth of the public warehouse to some degree, or is that a, a trivial Middle Ages and and previous decades sort of uh, thought process, or do you see a renewed model of that needing to emerge in the twenty um, first century? How 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 what are the specifics of the public domain, I guess, that you see, and how do the how do they begin to take authorship of this domain? I mean, in in my book, Zootopia, which I mean, should I just explain a little bit? Yeah, about maybe the maybe that's the easiest start. <laughs> okay, so the book is called Zootopia. Zootopia um, is a word I invented. It's a kind of practical alternative to utopia, which is ideal but therefore can't exist. Um, and the argument is really simple. It's just that we live in a world shaped by food to a much greater degree than we realize. And therefore, we live in a sitopia. So the word comes from the Greek word sitos, S-I-T-O-S, for food and topos for place. Um, in the book, what I do is I basically go from a plate of food out to the universe in seven chapters. And so it's, it came from a drawing I did, actually, trying to sort of work out where food sits in our world. And I drew a plate of food and then a tra- table around the plate, and then people around the table, you know, sharing connection, family, and then a cook figure, you know, love, nurturing, gratitude, maybe, you know, and then a market from which the food came, so trust, connection, economy, and then a city in which the market sat, and then a countryside in which the city sat, and then a nature in which the countryside sat, and then I drew a wiggly line at the edge of the page and wrote universe. So that's the structure of the book. It goes from a plate of food out to the universe at seven scales, So the first chapter is food, the second is the body, the third is home, the fourth is society, the fifth is city and country, the sixth is nature, and the seventh is time. And at each scale, I ask the question again, how can we use the lens of food to ask what is a good life? So, I mean, without literally sitting here now for 12 hours and telling you everything that's in the book, the the first and most important thing to say, I suppose, is that food is the most valuable thing in our lives. You know, so it consists of living things that we kill in order to live. So question, have we created a society in which we expect food to be cheap? You know, this is just weird, because if you say food should be cheap, you're saying life is cheap. And that's, in fact, what we're doing by implication. So then the whole thing in the book is to say, well, what kind of what would would the world look like if if we valued food, i.e. as the most important, most valuable thing in our lives? So to then directly come to your question, um, you know, it seems very clear to me that, you know, there is no such thing as sovereignty without food sovereignty, you know, and, and you know, in other words, um, you know, how, how can I have freedom if I can't eat good food? So if I'm living, if I'm a poor person living in a food desert in the middle of a, a, a shall we say, an American city where the nearest source of food is three miles away, uh, I'm not going to live a good life. There's just no hope. I'm not going to be able to live a good life. So there are many 
things that are wrong with that scenario. One of them is how advanced capitalism is no longer working because uh, it's just creating greater inequality. Secondly, we can't go on with it anyway because we're trashing the planet. Thirdly, there is no such thing as freedom if if I can't eat well, you know. So so out of that come a whole series of, shall we say, quasi-revolutionary ideas. If you say, as I do, that a good society is one in which everybody gets to eat well. Um, so if you like, the shared meal for me is the ideal model of a good society. Then, you know, we have to look at where the gaps are, you know, w- what it is that is meaning that people can't eat well. Now, part of that phenomenon is the way the food systems evolved to feed rich people, basically. You know, if you if you look at human history, we evolved as a species through the shared problem of how to eat. So if you look at a hunter-gatherer society, for example, it's all about how to eat. You know, basically everybody's job during the day is involved in some way in food. You know, if you're a hunter, you go off and try and, you know, trap a porcupine or kind of shoot a deer or something. If you're back in camp, and usually it's men who hunt and women who stay back in camp, you're gathering tubers and vegetables and roots and things, and you're cooking them so that everybody has something to eat at the end of the day. Now, that is, if you like, you know, you hunt, I cook is basically the first social contract in history. You know, in other words, it's people agreeing to do different things during the day for a shared reward, which is called the shared meal. So the shared meal is the first human economy. And by the way, it remains the most sophisticated and effective shared economy that we've ever invented in my view. So basically, you know, part of what I'm saying in the book is what have, what's happened to human society because we've gone from sharing through food, which we're very good at, by the way. So I don't know about you, but I mean, if you sit around a table with, you know, friends or even strangers and there's food in the middle, you know, nobody just grabs it all and goes, oh, I'm going to eat all of that. Thank you very much. We just do not do this, you know, because we know people would probably murder us as a result of this. But actually, if you think about how we share through money, that's precisely what people do all the time. Mm. There's a really, really interesting distinction to be made between the way we share through food and the way we share through money. So, you know, in terms of the sovereignty of food and the sovereignty question and who should have power over food, you know, really, I mean, for me, um, the essence comes down to the individual's right to eat well. What does that mean? Well, it could mean that I live in a city and I have enough money to eat well. Or it could mean that I'm a farmer and I have a a piece of land uh, and, you know, I feed myself, but I also feed others. And therefore, people are paying me enough to to grow that food. So it's a range of things. But what it is not is, you know, who gets to eat well being solely dominated by the market, nor is it the state feeding people because we that's a disaster. We saw what that, you know, communist Russia, for example, that is a disaster that doesn't work either. It's a combination, but it's got to be, um, you know, a social contract between all of us that that everyone is going to eat well. And then out of that come an economics, out of that comes a planning system, out of that comes a politics. Um, And if you want to know the detail, um, I think, uh, you know, what we need globally at the moment is a combination of more agency at a local level. So more regionality, which is absolutely about resilience and absolutely what, if you like, COVID-19 is also telling us, but also much stronger global governance, which ironically is also what COVID-19 is telling us. In other words, we're in this together. You know, we were in it together before, but we were struggling to see that. But finally, we're seeing it. 
So, you know, we the, the world's resources are shared by all of us and, you know, human and non-human. And uh, basically, we need a politics and an economics that comes out of that. And, you know, without wanting to scare the horses, um, where I come out is, is something that looks a bit like the anarchist model. But, you know, a sort of um, a practical version of the anarchist model, which is a lot of agency at the local level, but with nested governance above it. If stuff, you know, when you need sort of action at a, at a greater scale. I happen to be looking at the sort of Middle Ages Mappa Mundi, these sort of huge maps with the, you know, concentric circles. I believe they're the, you know, Jerusalem sits at the center and the edge of the defined universe uh, for them or the defined world is what rounds the perimeter but when you're describing the diagram it sounded very much similar to that model um so is it fair to say then in that it sounds like you'd be framing again maybe it's more akin to how you talked about the hungry city is the you frame essentially food as a human right right and as a primary driver economies but you assume that there's a variety of dialects through which that could be achieved on a localized level so would you imagine city to city to city, uh, a range of different social contracts um, achieved in different manifestations of that on a municipal urban policy level, as well as sort of, a, you know, how hinterlands are managed, things of this sort? Well, I'm certainly proposing land reform, you know, because we, we need that. And, and it's very interesting, again, if you look at sort of um, you utopian model so i mean one of the, the the reason i ended up inventing this word sitopia is because i was researching utopia and looking at lots of utopian models of you know how we should live you know what is a good society and so on and so much in utopia is about food you know it's about who owns the land it's about who does the farming it's about how food is shared etc etc it's about how big cities should be and as I say, I mean, it's it's kind of it's all there apart from actually seeing that food is at the centre of all of it. Um, so, you know, if you look at utopian thinkers like Thomas More and Aristotle and Ebenezer Howard, they're all basically saying the same thing, which is that, you know, to a certain extent, the city should be self-sufficient. So the city should feed itself from its local hinterland. You know, so this is the city-state model. And of course, Athens was a polis, which i.e. was a city-state. Um, you know, Thomas More was really critiquing London at the time of Henry VIII because it was getting far too powerful and greedy and basically saying, you know, we should go back to a series of semi-independent city-states. And Ebenezer Howard's Garden City is basically Thomas More with railways, you know, so it's a kind of updated version of the same idea. And what's interesting about all of that is that, you know, it raises the question of how as, uh, you know, good, good kind of political animals, to use Aristotle's term, we should inhabit land. So, I mean, I love this term that Aristotle uses of political animals, because basically it tells you that we have an inherent dualism in us. So, you know, political means we're social, which means we need to be together to thrive. And animal means we're of nature. And of course, when you, I mean, for most of human history, we were hunter-gatherers. So we could satisfy both of these needs by being in nature, but also in a tribe. You know, that was fine. When we started farming and building cities, then the duality becomes more problematic because, you know, you, you gather in cities to be social, but, you you know, you get further and further away from nature as you do so. Um, and it's really interesting, for example, that the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is the first, basically the first narrative ever written, um, 
which is from the city of Uruk in ancient Mesopotamia, you know, from sort of something like two and a half thousand years BCE. Um, the whole narrative is about how people living in the city are getting too far away from nature and they're starting to behave badly. They've forgotten that they still rely on the natural world. So that to me is mind blowing. You know, this is an ancient, ancient problem that we have. I call it the urban paradox. The urban paradox being that we, you know, you will open a newspaper and you will read, oh, the future's urban and, you know, 70% living in cities by 2050, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But where is our, where are our sources of sustenance going to be coming from? They're still going to be coming from nature. And in fact, a city is a natural, cities sit in nature too. You know, we just forget this. Um, in fact, I often like to call cities human nests because I think that's just a good way of sort of, reminding ourselves that they are organic living places you know a city without human inhabitants and indeed non-human inhabitants is not a living thing it's just it's just a lump of rock so um for me the question of how as political animals we dwell on the land is the way to frame the, the question and and what it tells you is that we all need society and nature so then the question is okay how do we organize ourselves on the landscape so that we can all have one foot in one and one foot in the other now this is what rich people have always done through history rich people have always had you know the place in the city where they can do their business and oh the country place darling where they go at the weekends this you know because it's ideal we need both but of course most of us don't have that because most of us can't afford that so then how do you design everything so that people have, you know, ordinary people like you and me have both? And the answer is, I mean, my formulation I've come up with is that we, at every scale, need to, and this sounds a bit technical, but it, it's the most pure way I've found of describing it, we need to maximise the urban-rural interface. So that means you have your city and your country as close together as possible. Now, that's what the city-state, which I call the fried egg urban model, does because basically the city state is, the city is in the middle, it's small, it's compact, it's like the yolk, and then the productive hinterland is around it like the egg white. And that's one way of doing it, but it's certainly not the only way. I mean, another way is to, as Patrick Geddes, the father of regional geography said, you know, we can preserve fingers of countryside, you know, radiating out from the city center. So as the city develops, it develops in sort of star shape, but you've got countryside, you know, in between. So you've got a few like a kind of starfish shaped city with with a big urban rural interface. And of course, we can do it at every scale. So I mean, if you if you design parks, if you design gardens, if you design orchards in the city, or you, indeed, you preserve uh, rural land in the city, as indeed, Tokyo did amazingly, with its 1952 Agriculture Act, it actually preserved organic farms in the city. So as the city expanded, those farms remained and they're still there today. You know, they're still serving local neighborhoods today. So it does, or it could be a window box with herbs in it. You know, at any scale, we need nature and we need society. So how do you know, that's a, a really for me is a clear design problem is how you design ideal habitats for political animals who are inherently dualistic. What's your take on uh, catchment areas? In terms of um, water supply, in terms of, uh, you know, food production capacity, do you start to see that on a regional level or do you see that as a restriction in terms of local population? Like, the, is there a, the sort of model that came to mind when you also mentioned anarchism with sort of the city-state model, but was how um, 
Greek uh, cities had this very interesting method of fracturing, right? They would, once they reached a certain capacity, they would send a population off from the mother city. And sometimes the new founding city would replicate a lot of the urban patterns from the mother city. But it's the one of the few urban examples I'm aware of that mimic this tribal capacity to fracture when a tribal population became too large. You know, past 40, they would send out a group of 12 and they would form their own yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, as I say, this is, yeah, I mean, and, you know, as you're speaking, I'm sort of thinking to myself, actually, it's almost the first model for franchising. You know, it's kind of like what the McDonald's did with kind of, you know, or Ray Kroc did with McDonald's, you know, <laughs> go off and set up your own burger bar. But um, no, I mean, it's a really important idea. And again, I mean, going back to Patrick Geddes, I mean, he also, you know, he spoke very much about how you know, all appropriate human dwelling has to refer to the land, you know, and historically it always has done. He's got this famous valley section that he draws and he sort of says, depending on which kind of terrain you're inhabiting, if it's the mountains or the forest or the lowlands or the seashore, people have always found a way of living that reflects that natural geography. And I think, I mean, I, I my phrase for this is I think we've entered a neo-geographical age because I think what we've done for the last 200 years is we've ignored geography. We've obliterated it, you know, with railways and then obviously cars and airplanes and all the rest and pretended it doesn't really exist. So, you know, you build cities in stupid places like Las Vegas, which is just the middle of the desert, you know, and or, or let's not even go into Dubai and so on, you know, and and now we need to sort of pay attention to geography again. And for me, that's a very beautiful thing, because as I say, I think, you know, what's been edited out of our vision of a good life for the last couple of centuries is our relationship with nature. You know, we don't thrive if we're far away from nature. So I guess my vision of a good life is one absolutely in which we, you know, we live according to what nature can can allow us to do on the land again. But as I say, this requires land reform. Um, and, and that's a very interesting subject in itself, but, you know, absolutely we have to maximize local resources and work with nature and not against it. So, I mean, that, that would be very much part of, um, the, the sort of the, the philosophy behind it, if you like. And then in terms of the urban planning side or the regional planning side, very much what you're talking about, you know, the reasons that the Greeks kind of sent people off to found a new city is because they were obsessed with keeping the city small so it could feed itself. So Aristotle and Plato are both obsessed with economia, which is basically the word from which we get our economics. It actually means household management. And the idea was that in an ideal city, every every citizen has a house in the city and a farm in the countryside. So that model again, and the farm feeds the house. So good economia, good household management is a self-sufficient household. And then lots of self-sufficient households make a self-sufficient state. And that is Aristotle's definition of the ideal state. And once you've got enough division scale, so division of labor within the state that not only can it feed itself, but also you've got enough, you know, blacksmiths and sort of horse dealers and, and whatever else you need, then that you don't get any bigger, basically. So, so he's obsessed with keeping it. Both he and Plato are obsessed with keeping the city small. And that is what is replicated then by Thomas More and by Ebenezer Howard. They, but they all go for this 30,000 kind of figure, which, of course, today would be ludicrously too small. You know, we'd probably need to multiply that by at least 10, you know, or maybe even 100. You know, a city of 3 million would make sense today. 
Um, but not a city of 30 million. That starts to be crazy and to, to, to set up all sorts of problems and to make it very difficult to incorporate city and country, you know, in terms of planning and so on. As you were saying, there's always this push for um, greater and greater density within a lot of the urban discourse. Uh, a lot of it's based on um, assumptions of innovative capacities, right? When you bundle groups of people, they become more and more innovative. Um, an oddity I, I had encountered was uh, folks who are actually interested in urban innovation. Quite a few articles talk about this where they trace, for instance, EU applications for patents. And they, they find the highest uh, numbers per, you know, 10,000 people. That kind of metric uh, caps out right around a million. But there's this insistence of, you know, 5 million, 10 million, 20 million population figures. It seems like actually going back to what, you know, what innovation uh, studies are actually showing us in terms of the ideal population size uh, being much, much smaller. There's many, many factors here. I mean, so there's, there's I mean, of course, you know, there is no ideal figure um, I mean, you know, Oxford and Cambridge in the UK are two of the most innovative places on the planet, and they're both tiny, but they happen to be university towns, so bright people go there to live, you know. So, um, and also it depends on the granularity of the city. So just being big or just being small is useless if if all you've got is, you know, kind of people going to offices and Amazon fulfillment centres, you know. So you need neighbourhoods as well. And if you've got neighborhoods that are functional, so, you know, for example, the Tokyo model again, the fact that it's got these farms means, you know, it's, it's got this village structure a bit like London. And that actually makes gives you the kind of granularity of, of locality, even in a big city. So so I think I mean, and it, but it's a very, very interesting point. And, you know, I think I think there is there's a range of, of good sizes for cities that are very much to do with other conditions, too. Um, and, you know, I think it probably, there is a range, as I would say, sort of, of, um, somewhere between probably, you know, half a million and, you know, two or three million, which is kind of, has the best chance of being able to both, as you say, have the kind of the, the, um, creativity of urbanity, but also to be, maintain this, this balance between city and country, which is also really important. Um, and all the kind of um, urban innovation people tend to forget that need as well, you know, so they um, they show pictures of, you know, some Indian market where every time a train comes through, you know, everybody clears their stalls away and then everyone goes back and they get terribly excited about this. I mean, it is extraordinary. But on the other hand, that is not catering for a very deep need that we also have. It has to be geography specific too, no? As going yeah. back to your original point of, you know, there are there are realities that the geography can provide. Um, in terms of timeline, so Hungry City was 2008, correct? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this yeah. is 2020. So is, is Human Nests the subsequent book coming out in 2032 at this pace? What's, the, uh, what's next on the well, horizon for you? Always bring a book out in a year of major global crisis. So I've done the financial crash and I've done COVID-19. So you know, I, I would hesitate to put a date on it because probably that's going to be when the insects die or something. But um, no, I mean, I, I, the weird thing for me is that I, um, I didn't really set out to write a book in the abstract. I just had these ideas that became so overwhelming to me that it became necessary to write a book to kind of explore them really. Um, and that's been the case both times. I mean, at the moment, having spent eight years solidly working on this latest book. 
Sitopia, I, I, I don't particularly have the urge to write anything for a while. In fact, I was rather hoping to be doing a lot more of this. You know, I had 40 events in the diary that have all been cancelled or postponed. But, um, you know, of course, the thinking carries on. I mean, my thinking has already carried on. And of course, COVID-19 is now an absolutely fasc fascinating and necessary thing that any future book I wrote, non-fiction book, would have to incorporate and would have to discuss. And that could be really interesting. I mean, I have other things that I want to write about that aren't necessarily to do with food at all, believe it or not. I mean, food for me was always, as I say, a really fascinating lens to getting to other stuff, which was to do with what a good life was, really, ultimately, um, which, of course, is the ultimate question for all of us, if you like. I mean, well, the ultimate practical question. I mean, the ultimate question is just what is existence or something, but um, that that's a bit too abstract for me. I quite like it to kind of to bring it down to what can we do about it. So I don't. I really don't know. I mean, I'm I I'm following the idea. I'm following where it goes. I mean, I'm I'm looking for dialogue now. I'm looking for people to read the book and then come back to me and say, well, we liked that bit, but the other bit was you know a bit dodgy, and you know, so sort of. For the, for the conversation to begin, that's what I'm really looking forward to. And we'll just see where it goes. And that was the objective of the tour, right? To begin the, the spark yeah, of yeah. that conversation. Yeah. And I mean, actually, the three, you know, events that I did before COVID. So before the book came out, I was already doing events that were to do with the book. Um, and COVID-19 came up a lot, you know, and it was it, it was really amazing. There was so much to say and so, you know, so much you know, always in these times of crisis, people are so much more open to, to new ideas. So, I mean, it was it was really wonderful. And I, I'm very, very sad not to be having more conversations now. Um, obviously, we have amazing technologies like this allowing us to speak, which is fantastic. But, um, yeah, you, you follow the idea. That That's what it feels like to me. My idea is really simple. It's basically that, you know, food is the most important connective tool that we have for addressing all of our problems through. And I spent the last 20 years really pursuing that idea. And I dare say I'll pursue it for the rest of my life now. Because <laughs> I don't seem to write more than a book a decade. Um, but, you know, it's not an idea that gets boring. I mean, it's an endlessly fascinating idea. And, I, you know, one that just teaches me more and more every day. So I have no intention of stopping thinking about this stuff. How um, how has the significance or meaning of architecture shifted for you within that 20 years? Because it's a completely different scale of thinking. It's a, it's a completely different approach to the physical and built world. Um, do you still see... Do you qualify yourself as an architect uh, still at this point, or is there a, has that lost some of its meaning for you? Um, no, it really hasn't, actually. I mean, interestingly, you know, I, I couldn't have written the books I've written if I wasn't an architect. I think like an architect. I, I mean, I've just told you the book I've just, you know, written came from a drawing. That's a very, very architecty thing to do. Lots of people looked at this drawing and went, that, that is not a book, you know. But it, for me, it is because I think like an architect. So I'm never going to stop being an architect. I mean, the reason I got into food in the first place, I guess, was because, shall we say, traditional architecture, where what you do is build buildings and think about buildings all day, didn't wasn't really whatever interested me about architecture anyway. I mean, for me, um, I guess it was always more interesting 
you know, something about the relationship between us and the buildings was where my interest really lay. Um, so that hasn't changed, oddly. Um, and in fact, you know, if you think about what the ultimate question for an architect is, it's really about, it, it really is how should we live? How should we dwell? You know, I mean, an architect, you know, reflects life through their creations and tries to, both to accommodate and shape them, you know, and and good architects do both and bad architects just shape in a rather controlling way and don't allow, you know, the unexpected to take place and so on. So I was always quite a hands-off architect when I was designing and very much wanted to just foster life and, you know, believed in really kind of doing as little as possible in many ways. Um, and as Cedric Price, the English architect, said, sometimes the answer is not a building. Um, so weirdly, no, I would say my relationship with architecture hasn't changed at all, really bizarrely. And really bizarrely to me as well, I don't miss actually being one. I don't miss designing stuff. I don't miss being on site. I don't miss any of that, even though, you know, I thoroughly enjoyed it when I was doing it. Because for me, I'm using my architectural sensibilities in a way that is more kind of what I was put on the planet to do. You know, it seems that I like to do the thinking. It seems that I like to wrestle with ideas and and really explore them in the abstract, I guess. And But, but as I say, I, I couldn't be doing any of this if I wasn't an architect. And are you still teaching full time? What's what's your what's your current? Uh, I, I I tend to do guest guest appearances at universities. So, for example, last year I went to the the Slow Food University mm. um, and did a week, you know, and just and then left, sort of thing. So I'm not lecturing full time anywhere at the moment. No, I might do that again. I don't know. I mean. Um, I, I personally can't write a book and do anything else at the same time. Uh, certainly not a book like the one I just wrote, um, because it's so vast in scope and it required me to, I mean, you know, I often use the analogy of deep sea diving, you know, so. You need to decompress. So, yeah, 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 yeah. And so I didn't blog at all, for example, when I was writing the book either, because I couldn't blog and be doing this other stuff. I mean, I, you know. I was down here on the ocean bed kind of doing this, you know, <laughs> trying to get all marks in my head. And I could went to a lovely market the other day. You know, I mean, it would have literally taken two days to get up there and then three days to get down again, by which time you've lost a week. So I just didn't bother. But um, I probably will now. And I haven't blogged since COVID-19 started, but I will. There's so much to say, so I probably will start blogging quite a lot, I should think, in the next weeks as well. Well, it's very... Uh... Very, very insightful, I'll say. Um, well, that's a good point to end on. Yeah, thank you, Carolyn. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. All right, thank you, Carolyn. <laughs>